Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a sovereign grace fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle Paul's letter to the Galatians. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty. I'd like to start every sermon by saying one thing that is absolutely true that nobody can argue with. It's good to be home. I don't think anyone could argue with that. Boy, there's just nothing worse in the world than being on the road and being sick. And I am just very, very happy that I was able to get back here before the worst of the sickness hit me. But oh my goodness, was I sick. I appreciate Micah being here two Sundays ago. His message online got very good reaction. And then last week, as Jeff mentioned, Steve was scheduled to speak. 
and uh, he fell sick. He had strep throat. And so then Jeff stepped up and said, well, I'll handle it. I'll, I'll make up some kind. Well, it'll be fine. And then Sunday morning, Jeff said, oh, I'm so sick. And then Tom fortunately stepped up. No pressure. It was like, well, it's on you, Tom. And uh, I understand that everything went just fine last Sunday. You can tell that we've got people out sick. You can tell we've still got people traveling. But I'm very grateful for the folks who are here. We are in the book of Galatians. We are in Galatians chapter 4, starting at verse 1. In order to read Galatians 4, we have to understand a little bit of Pauline principles of salvation, of soteriology. I hope by now you are familiar enough with the law of Moses that you understand that the law is full of absolutes. The law is full of standards that you don't get an opinion about. The law was imposed on Israel. They had to live by the Ten Commandments and the 1613 ordinances of the law. If they broke any one of them, they were guilty of all of it. And God said, if you don't keep my rules, if you don't keep my law, then I'm going to punish you and I'm going to punish you bad. And so the law was non-negotiable. And yet, Paul keeps saying things like, you know, that whole law thing, that was fundamental, elemental principles. And you don't really need to go back to that. The law had a function. It had a job. It worked as a pedagogos. It worked as a servant in order to get us to Christ. But now that we're to Christ, we don't need to go back to the elemental principles of the law. How does Paul get away with saying such things? The only way he can say that once non-negotiable law is now simply elemental principles that you don't need to go back to. The only way that could happen is if there was a change of covenants. And that's why here at GCA we talk so much about the new covenant over against the old covenant. The old covenant, the law covenant, the Moses covenant was conditional. It had a beginning place at Mount Sinai, and it had a stopping place at Calvary. So Paul could then say to people who were being encouraged to go back to the fundamentals of the law, he could say to them, why would you do that? The whole book of Hebrews, a Hebrew writing to Hebrews, is begging them, cajoling them, saying to them insistently, you can't go back to the law. You can't go back to the things that were merely shadows. It is Christ who is the substance who cast the shadow. Now that Christ is here, there's no going back. And yet, in Galatia, there were Judaizers who had come down from Jerusalem and were encouraging the Gentiles in the church there to be circumcised and to keep parts of the law. And so Paul is arguing adamantly that that is not the Christian approach. 
that the only approach to God that actually results in eternal salvation is through faith in Christ, not through the works that you can do with your own flesh, with your own hands. And so he is going to call, as I just used that phrase a couple times, he's going to call the law the elemental principles. Stoikion is the Greek word, and it means something that's fundamental, something that's the initial stuff, something that is a constituent part of something larger. It's something very rudimentary. And so he is referring to the rules of the law and the statutes and the ordinances of the law as constituent, elementary, rudimentary things which we've now moved past. So why would you go back to them? Now, just so you understand how Paul is using this word, I I know that I just told you we're in Galatians 4, but we're going to start by reading Colossians 2. So turn there. Micah actually read this for us a couple of weeks ago because I think he already had it in his head that once we got to Galatians chapter 4, we were going to have to define what these elementary principles actually are. I'm going to start reading in Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him, you have been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and all authority. So if you are complete in Christ, what do you need to add to that? Nothing. What if you add your works? What if you add your ability to clean yourself up and make yourself look better? Well, if you're complete, there's nothing you can add. And so this is basic Pauline theology that your completion before God is in him. There is no other way to stand fully redeemed and complete before God. In him you have been made complete. He is the ruler, the head, the top over all rule and all authority, all exousia, all power. He is superior to all of it. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. So the Judaizers are coming to Galatia and they're saying you need to be physically circumcised according to the Abrahamic covenant and then you need to keep the law according to the covenant with Moses. And here Paul is saying even that circumcision that created a division between Israel and all other people groups, that physical circumcision was also a sign. It was also pointing you toward Christ and pointing you to the fact that what you really need is the putting off of your flesh and all your fleshly works, all your fleshly desires, all your desire to please God and be perfect by your flesh. You have to put all of that aside in favor of the complete spiritual perfection and satisfaction that comes through Christ, and he likens that to a circumcision made without hands. 
In Christ you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised up with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive together with him, having forgiven us all our transgressions. What wonderful theology. First off, notice the description of you by your flesh, you naturally. You are dead. D-E-A-D, big font, red letters, underline, dead. The Bible does not say you stumbled. Does not say you're capable, you just slipped. What the Bible says is you were dead, incapable of doing anything spiritually prosperous. Incapable of doing anything to please God. Incapable of doing anything that would result in your salvation. Dead in trespasses and sins. And while you were dead in your transgressions, God did stuff for you. So did he do that stuff for you because you did something? No, you're dead. Did he do anything for you because you cleaned yourself up and made yourself alive? No, you're dead. And while you were dead in your transgressions and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive, dead, alive. How did you become alive when you were dead? Just like Jesus having to say to Lazarus, Lazarus, come forth. That was the only way Lazarus was getting up again, was by the power of God that raised him up to newness of life. Same idea. Dead in trespasses and sins, he raised you up. He made you alive. That's why you're capable of thinking anything about God today. Here, let's test this theory. Can you think of a time in your life when you didn't understand the Bible at all? Yeah. Dad, can you think of a time in your life when you really didn't care about the things of God? You didn't care about Christ. You figured you were pretty groovy. You were going to go through your own life on your own. You'll figure yourself out. You're fine. Yes, I use the word groovy. I'm really old. Get used to it. You thought you were okay, and you gave no thought to the fact that you were in opposition to the holiness of God. That's what deadness is. You had no idea what you were doing, nor did you care. You were godless and didn't care that you were godless because you were dead. And how did you go from that state of deadness to being alive to the things of God, to caring about the Bible, to understanding the word of God, to caring about the things of Christ, to wanting to worship God. How did you go from, I don't care, to I'm a Christian? God had to do that. God woke us up. God raised us. Why is she the only one who knew the answer? 
God woke us up. He made you alive together with Christ. And how did he do that? Having forgiven us all our transgressions. The very transgressions that kept you dead are the very transgressions he forgave so that he could make you alive again in Christ. On top of that, look at verse 14. This is astounding. Having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees that were against us, which were hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to his cross. Paul just said that the law that would condemn us, that the law of Moses that held us guilty, the law of Moses that proved our deadness, not only did Christ forgive our sins and our transgressions, but on top of that, he took the certificate of debt that we had before God that consisted of decrees, okay, that would be the law, and he took it out of the way because it was hostile to us. It was against us. So let's talk about how saved we are for just a moment, okay? Okay, George? Sure. Can we talk about how saved we are for just a moment, Micah? You good with it? Okay, let's talk about how saved we are. Not only did he forgive us for our sins, transgressions, trespasses, our rebellions against him, not only did he forgive us, but then he took the very thing that was condemning us, that was against us, and he nailed it to his tree and took it out of the way. So what can condemn you now? Nothing. Not your sin. Not your life of rebellion. He paid for that. He took that decree. And the very law that would condemn you, that held you in bondage, he took that out of the way, nailing it to his cross. Verse 15. On top of that, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. He's talking about the evil authorities, the same way that Paul says, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, the rulers of the darkness of this age, spiritual wickedness on high in heavenly places. He's talking about them, and he says, they also were keeping you dead. The law was keeping you dead. The demonic hordes of this world wanted to keep you dead. Your own flesh and your sin was keeping you dead. So he satisfied your flesh by removing your trespasses, by circumcising you with the circumcision of Christ, the removal of the flesh. He paid for all your sin debt, and then he canceled out the law that would be against you, and then he disarmed the rulers and the authorities, and he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through Christ. When Christ rose up and said, all authority in heaven and earth is given to me, he meant it. He has all the authority, which means, by the way, if he's on your side, who can be against you? If he has all the rule, if he has all the authority, if he's the one who has all the power. 
Well, then nothing can get in the way between you and God, you and your salvation. Nothing can stop you. The law can't get you. Your own flesh can't get you. The devil can't get you. You are secure in Jesus Christ because he has already accomplished your deliverance from all the things that were destroying you. This is a very complete salvation we're talking about. Verse 16, therefore, I love that therefore. Now, knowing all that, knowing what he has already accomplished on your behalf, knowing how completely saved you actually are, therefore, let no one act as your judge in regard to food or drink or in respect to a feast day or a new moon. Or a Sabbath day. Hold on. The law of Moses was not negotiable. And it said, you have to keep my Sabbath. The reason that Israel went into both the Assyrian captivity and the Babylonian captivity for Jerusalem, the reason those things happened was partially because Israel was not keeping God's Sabbaths. God is very, very serious about his Sabbaths. And now Paul says, and uh, don't let anybody judge you on that Sabbath thing. What changed? New covenant. A deliverer, a fully complete deliverer. Someone who could perfect you. Someone who could make it fine between you and the God who would otherwise judge and condemn you. Therefore, don't let anybody be your judge in regard to what you eat. There are kosher rules in the law. You can eat this, you can't eat that. And yet, Paul says, don't let anybody act as your judge in regard to food or what you drink. In respect to the feast days, according to the law, three times a year, every Jew that could travel had to go to Jerusalem. They had to bring their tithes with them. These were important dates. And yet Paul says, "Ah, don't worry about it. In respect to a feast or a new moon or a Sabbath. And here's why he says that you should not let anybody judge you in regard to these things, verse 17, these are things that are a mere shadow of what is to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. In other words, those things were all leading you, like a schoolmaster, those things were leading you to Christ. They cast a shadow, but the substance that was casting the shadow is Christ. So now that you've come to Christ, you don't need to worry about all that stuff. Now he is going to, having defined all that, now he's going to call those things, which are according to the law, elemental principles. And he's going to use the exact same word, stoikion, in order to identify the works of the flesh according to the law that were fundamental but can't save you. Verse 18. Let no one keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and the worship of angels, taking his stand on visions he has seen, inflated without cause by his own fleshly mind. There's a lot going on in that verse. Number one, he's talking about self-abasement. Has anybody here ever been to a church or been part of some religion that was all based in don't do stuff. 
That's self-abasement. Just keep your flesh down. Just, I remember when I was in high school, back before the flood, there was a movement among the born-again Christians in my high school. Uh, we don't go to movies. We don't believe in movies. They actually use that phrase. We don't believe in movies. And I kept thinking, uh, they exist. Uh, you don't believe in them? And so it was a self-abasement thing. It was that same Lenten idea of every Lent, I'm going to give up stuff. I'm going to abase myself in my flesh. I'm going to show God I'm serious. And Paul says those things, they have some value in demonstrating will worship, but they have no actual spiritual value. So don't let anybody keep defrauding you of your prize by delighting in self-abasement and then the worshiping of angels in the history of Israel, in the history of the Old Testament, you see angels show up very, very frequently, and you can see why people would want to worship angels, why they would want to bow down to, to angels. If an angel walked in right now, we'd all be completely enwrapped, and many of us would fall on our face. And, and the angels in the Bible, like in the book of Revelation, when people try to worship an angel, the angels say, don't do it. I'm a fellow servant like you are. Worship God. He's the only one who deserves worship. And so just like the writer of the book of Hebrews, they had to deal with this angel worship that was going on in the first century church. And he says there are people who will take their stand on visions that they claim to have seen inflated, egocentric, without cause by their own fleshly mind. All you got to do is turn on TBN any day of the week, and you'll see somebody there talking about angels and visions and inflated in their own minds. Paul, 2,000 years ago, already eliminated that. So when you see somebody puffed up in their fleshly mind talking about their visions and the angels they've seen, Paul says that's taking away from the fullness, the completeness, the perfection of Christ. Because verse 19 says they are not holding fast to the head. That's Christ. From whom the entire body, being supplied and held together by the joints and the ligaments, grows with a growth which is from God. If you have died with Christ to the elementary principles of this world... Why, as if you were still living in this world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? Okay, the law was full of rules about what you couldn't handle and what you couldn't eat, what you couldn't taste, what you couldn't touch. And Paul says, now that you've been delivered by Christ... Now that you are in him and he is in you, now that you are perfect and complete through faith in him, why would you return to these elementary principles, these stoichion, these things that are fundamentals that cannot save you? They are worldly, fleshly things. And why, if you've died with Christ to those things, the elementary principles of the world, why, as if you were still living in the world, do you submit yourself to decrees such as do not handle, do not taste, do not touch? 
which all refer to things that are destined to perish with the using. Do you understand what Paul just said? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Okay, fine. You're going to do some stuff. Okay, and you're going to make sure we all know it so we can all go, ooh, look at you. You're going to make sure that you do some stuff. I don't eat that. I won't touch that. I don't know. I'm better than you. I've never tasted that. I'm better. And then he says, you know, whatever credit you get for that, that's all you get for it. All you get is a few other people looked at you and went, ooh. Outside of that, you get nothing. You get nothing eternally. You get nothing in your relationship with God. It accomplished nothing. These all refer to things that are destined to perish with the using. In accordance with the commandments and the teaching of men. These are matters which have, to be sure, the appearance of wisdom in self-made religion and self-abasement and severe treatment of the body, but they are of no value against fleshly indulgence. This is brilliant. Paul just said that while you're doing these fundamental things, I don't taste, I don't touch, I don't go to movies, I don't play poker, I don't, whatever your thing is, while you're busy bragging about it, and people think you're special because you're showing off your fundamentals, that you're capable of your self-indulgence and your own self-made religion. Paul says they're of no value against fleshly indulgence. In other words, it's just another version of, look at me. It's just another version of your ego. It's just another version of you showing off. So what would be the point of that? Well, there would be no point to that. So that's Paul's argument. All right, so now turn to the book of Romans. Do you get a feel now for what these fundamental principles are that Paul is talking about? Go to Romans 14, and we're going to see that this is standard Pauline teaching and thinking. This is not something that he just whipped up in order to answer the Judaizers at Galatia. This is standard Pauline theology. Romans 14, I'm going to read the first nine verses. Now, in order to understand the language, he's going to talk about those who are weak and those who are strong. In context, what he is saying is there are some people who don't have the same level of freedom in Christ because their conscience is still bound to certain do-not-taste-do-not-touch rules. And he calls those people weaker brethren. Those are people who don't have the strength of the knowledge of Christ and the freedom fully that we have in Christ. But then he says, when it comes to these weaker brethren, don't make fun of them. Don't look down on them. It's just that their conscience is still bound by their history, by their traditions, by their background. In other words, accept the one who is weak. And that's verse 1 of chapter 14 of Romans. Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One man has faith that he can eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. And that's why he's weak, because he only (laughs) eats vegetables. 
Don't write to me, you vegetarians out there. I, I, it was a joke. One man has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. Let not him who eats all things regard with contempt him who does not eat all things. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and stand he will, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One man regards one day above another, another regards every day alike. He's talking about Sabbaths now. In the law, as I just stated, in the law, non-negotiable, Sabbaths. Every seventh day, every seventh year, every seven of seven years, and the year of Jubilee after that, you had to keep the Sabbaths. And yet, here's Paul saying, eh, one man regards one day above another, and another regards every day the same. Paul is adamant that there has been a change of covenant, and as a consequence, the only way that you can approach God and be saved is through Christ. The works of your flesh, your Sabbath keeping, your eating particular things or not eating particular things, even though that might get you some credit in showing off your own will worship, The truth of the matter is your self-subordination accomplishes nothing beyond that immediate moment when you accomplish it. But the truth is you're not allowed to judge either the one who does or the one who doesn't have that level of freedom because they stand before their own master and the Lord God is able to make them stand. And one man regards one day above another And another regards every day alike. Let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day, observes it for the Lord. He who eats, does so for the Lord. For he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat. And he gives thanks to God. For not one of us lives to himself, and not one dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or we die, we belong to the Lord. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be the Lord both of the dead and of the living. But you... Why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother with contempt? Okay, so what am I trying to show you so far? In order to understand what we're about to read in Galatians 4, we have to understand that standard Pauline theology is those things, those ordinances that were once standard to the law, that were once the very pillar of the law, the foundation, the groundwork of the law, those things you had to perform according to the law are not the things that result in eternal salvation. Eternal salvation is only through faith in Christ. 
And if you have come to faith in Christ, if you have been baptized in Christ and thereby died with Christ and been raised up again in Christ, if that's you, why would you continue living as if you're still under these elementary, worldly, do not, touch not, taste not principles? You get it? Yes. I'm just trying to show you the freedom we have in Christ. Because if I just simply said it, people would go, well, now wait. Are we really that free? Do we really have that level of freedom in Christ? And the answer is, yeah. That's what Paul keeps saying. You really have that level of freedom. Unfortunately, most of us are still bound up by our religion and what we grew up with and by our background and our church and our denominations. But the reality is, if you have faith in Christ then he has fully paid for the sins of your life. He has taken the law away, which would condemn you. He is guarding you and protecting you from the evil and demonic things of this world that would come against you. You are truly, genuinely saved in Christ. So why, if that is the case, why, asks Paul, would you look for something else? And why would that something else be you? Why would you think... You're the solution. Christ is the full, complete solution. All right, Galatians 4, that was indeed all introduction for our visitor this morning. Introductions don't count against my time. Strap in, we're going to be here a while. Is he still here? Did I scare him? Okay. Galatians chapter 4, verse 1. Now I say, as long as the heir is a child... He does not differ at all from a slave, although he is the owner of everything. We live in a society that is a three-tiered society. In other words, we have a middle class. The middle class, which most of all of us belong to, is a recently new phenomena in the history of the world. 2,000 years ago in the Middle East and in Roman culture, it was a two-tiered society. That two-tiered society was made up of free men and slaves. You were one or the other. You were really poor, and therefore you sold yourself into slavery, or you were really rich, and you had people who did everything for you so that you could live a life of leisure. There was no middle class in between there. Okay, so it was very, very common for people to have indentured servants in their house. And so Paul is saying, when you have a child in your house, a young child, six, seven years old, when you have that child, he's being taken care of by the servants. And he's being disciplined by the servants. He's being educated by the servants. He's being fed by the servants. And there is the leader of the house, the father of the house. He's the guy who gets to relax and do whatever he wants But the child is still being raised up and trained up as if he is one of the servants. And so Paul is going to draw this equation between that kind of household situation and our situation with God. So he starts by saying, as long as that child, who is the heir, after all, he is perhaps the firstborn child, but any child of the homeowner is the heir of what the homeowner owns. 
So even though he is the heir of everything, he technically owns everything, he's still like one of the servants. He's still like one of the slaves in the house. So as long as the heir is a child, he does not differ at all from a slave, although he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until a date set by his father. There is a point at which the father would announce that he considered his son to be fully grown and that he was turning all of his wealth and power and authority over to his son. So even though he has been raised by guardians and managers, all different servants within the house, even though he's being raised by them, he is still the owner of everything, but not until the day that the father says he's now the owner of everything. Verse 3, so also we, while we were children, he's talking spiritually now, and he's talking particularly about Israel now, while we were children, we were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. Exact same word, stoichion. So we were held under the elemental principles of this world. This is what he's referring to the law as. He is saying the law was like a manager. The law was like a, a guardian. The law was like a servant within the father's household. And we, we are heirs of everything the Father has for us. But it's not time yet for us to inherit everything. Therefore, we were kept under the elemental principles of this world. But, verse 4, but when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive, I told you this word three weeks ago, huiothesia, so that we would receive adoption as sons is what the NASB says. It's literally son placement. It's literally God placing us in a position <coughs> as heirs, as sons. Do me a favor, if you would, uh, Tom, look up Mark 14, 36. Micah, you feel like reading something? Sure. Romans 8, you're going to read 14 to 17 for us. In order that he might redeem those who were under the law. Very interesting Pauline theology again. Uh, Christ, who was ever eternally spiritual, became flesh so that he could redeem those who were in the flesh. That is why the writer of Hebrews says that we have a high priest who can feel the infirmities of our flesh because he's been here. He knows what it's like. But not only was he born in the flesh, according to the flesh, he was born a Jew, therefore he was born under the law, so that he could redeem those who were under the law. So he's talking specifically about Israel here, who was under the law. 
Israel then is being redeemed from the law, which is why the early church was all Jewish. And then eventually the good news of the gospel spread to the Gentiles. And he redeemed those who were under the law and then gave them the gift of son placement. Okay, so we would like to think that we are the sons and daughters of God. I love that language where Jesus calls us brothers. Oh, great language. Where we're in the family of God, he's our older brother. How did we get there? We didn't do it through our work. We didn't do it through following the elemental principles of this world. We didn't do it by keeping the law. It is a result of God who did son placement. You're exactly right. He did it by himself. He redeemed us by sending his son into the world under the law so that he could redeem fleshly people from the curse of the law. And therefore, God was able to place us as sons and daughters because we had been fully redeemed, fully cleaned up, perfected in Christ, protected from the curse of the law, protected from the demonic influences of this world, separated us to himself, and then called us sons and daughters. Look, I don't like most of you. Uh, no, that, that's a, a, just seeing if you're still awake. I have a son and I have a daughter, both of whom have COVID right now. I have a son and a daughter. And if any of you came along and just said arbitrarily, uh, hey, uh, I'm your son now, I'm going to go, no. <laughs> no, don't think so. You probably have parents. Go back to them. Tell your mother she wants you. Go, go, <laughs> go away. And yet God, who knows you far better than I know you, that God would deign to not only redeem you, but draw you and teach you and then call you his family. As a result of that, we get to go to him and call him father. In the Old Testament, God is referred to as God, as Lord, as master, not as father. But through Christ, this relationship, this family relationship. Look, I like my kids for the most part. Um, and as a consequence, I will instruct my kids. I will discipline my kids. But I also love my kids more than I love your kids. And that's just fair, isn't it? Here is God who is going to allow that you are now his child with everything that means in terms of inheritance. And you are prepared to inherit joint heir with Christ in everything that Christ himself deserves to have. You get to have a portion of it because God himself placed you as his child. Therefore, you get to call him Father, that's astounding. When Jesus said to his apostles how to pray, he said, you start by saying, our Father. Remarkable. Here, uh, Tom, if you would, read Mark 14, 36. 
And he was saying, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Okay, so Jesus gets to call God Abba, this word of affection. He gets to call him Father because he really is the Son of God. Therefore, given the intimacy of that relationship, Jesus can rightly call him Abba, Father. But now Micah, read Romans 8, 14 to 17 to us. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are the sons of God. Wait, all who are led by the Spirit of God are now the sons of God? Keep going. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by which we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. Children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So we get to go to God and call him that same intimate name that Christ only could call God. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he said, Abba, Father. Now Paul writes, that we get to come boldly to this throne of grace, crying, Abba, Father. We get to the throne of God, and we find our Father. It's remarkable language. And then Paul goes on to say, if he's our Father, that makes us the children, and that makes us heirs, heirs of the promise of God. And so here to the Galatians, he says, So also we, when we were children, we were held in bondage under the elemental things of the world. But when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that he might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Remarkable. I know I said a few minutes ago that I don't like you. Um, I'll tell you who I don't like. I'll tell you. I'll, tell you. I'll, I'll be honest with you. I'll tell you who I don't like. Me, I don't like me. I, I know me, I know where I've been, I know what I've done, I'm not a fan, okay? And yet, that God would allow, that God would deign, that I get to call him Father, and then he would make me joint heir with Christ in everything that Christ deserves, and I know for a fact that I didn't do that. I didn't accomplish that. I'm not the one who put forth the effort. I didn't do enough of the elemental things of this world in order to satisfy or to ingratiate God toward me. No, he did it. He did it all. Look, all I'm saying is grace, 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 grace. That's all I'm saying. It is a remarkable grace, amazing grace of God that he would allow somebody like me into his eternity. 
that he would draw somebody like me, measly little, wormy little, scar-bellied, bald little me, that he would reach down, send his son to redeem me, buy me off the slave market of sin, and let me call him Abba. That's astounding. Now apply that to yourself. Because it's amazing. We're nearly done. Because you are sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And therefore, you are no longer a slave. You're no longer slave to the law, to the rudiments of this world. You're no longer under that schoolmaster. Therefore, you're no longer a slave, but you are a son. And if you are a son, then you are an heir through God. However, at that time, when you did not know God, you were slaves to those things which by nature are no gods. But now that you have come to know God, and then he immediately corrects himself, or rather, now that you've come to be known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and the worthless elemental things to which you desire to be enslaved all over again? You observe days and months and seasons and years. I fear for you that perhaps I have labored over you in vain. That's where we will pick up next week. I hope if you come away with nothing else this morning, that number one, you have some greater comprehension of the astounding grace of God that resulted in your salvation. Give up on yourself. You cannot, in your flesh, do work sufficient enough, even if you were to keep every standard of the law that would still not be enough to satisfy God. Paul calls those the elemental things of this world. The truth of the matter is the only way you're going to get from here to your eternity, your God-ordained eternity, is through Jesus Christ. Therefore, have faith in Jesus Christ. Run to Jesus Christ. Cast yourself on Jesus Christ. You have no other hope. There is no other name given among men by which men ought to be saved, or even will be saved, but by the name of Jesus Christ. So... I hope that gives you some sense of the freedom that there is in Christ, that you will give up on your desire, your natural fleshly desire, to do things that you think are qualifying you in heaven. But those things, Paul says, other men might see it, other men might go, hey, good for you. But that's all you get. Because only through Christ do you get actual eternal redemption and salvation and that is just mighty, mighty good news. It is. It's good to be home. See ya.
for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday Morning Message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.